You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome back to Snowcast. I'm John Snow and this week's guest is Dr. Rachel Clark. Rachel is a palliative care doctor and best-selling author who spent a decade working as a journalist before deciding to change careers. She took her science A-levels, studied in the evening and started at medical school just before her 30th birthday. When the time came to specialise, Rachel chose palliative care because the challenge of helping patients approach the end of life with dignity touched something deep within her. Now, Rachel is balancing a busy NHS career with a vital new charity called Hospice Ukraine, which she founded after visiting the war-torn country in October 2022. Rachel has witnessed the impact of funding cuts from the perspective of both doctor and journalist, and she and I met as junior doctors entered a third day of strike action, with the dispute over pay restoration showing no sign of being resolved. Well, it's a great delight to have my guest today because we're actually old friends. We work together. Rachel Clark is an exceptional individual. And what's really particularly interesting, I actually didn't become a doctor till quite well on in life. I started medical school when I was 29, just a few weeks off my 30th birthday. I'd been a journalist for 10 years before that, which of course is where we met. But day one of medical school, I felt like I was just doing the thing I was born to be. And I just loved it, sat right at the front of the lecture theatres and it was joy learning medicine. You woke up one day, the journalist that you were, and realised you needed to be a doctor? It was a little bit more gradual. I was one of those kids who was good at science at school. So all your teachers say, oh, you should do medicine. And my dad was a doctor, my granddad was a doctor, mum was a nurse. And I was always torn between writing and the power of words and how naturally interested in medicine I I was from childhood onwards. I was obsessed with my dad's stories, his patients. And I think over the years in journalism, I realised not that I'd got it wrong because I did love being a journalist, 
But I had this nagging thought that just got stronger and stronger as the years went by. You should have been a doctor. You know you'd have loved it. And in the end, I had to give in to that and and try. It's not an easy thing to take up at 30. No, although after working in television for 10 years... The joy of going back to learning, you know, learning is wasted on the young, isn't it? I had no idea what a luxury it was at school and university to have all this time learning. And so suddenly, when you go back into it as an adult, it's just magic. And you really notice the toll once you get into being a junior doctor, because the hours are so long then. And those 13, 14, 15 hour night shifts They're tough in your 20s, in your late 30s, 40s, as I was. My goodness me, they're difficult. Did that first decade as a journalist spur you into wishing to do more for your fellow human beings? Very much so, John. I was a very idealistic child and teen, and I remember when I was in sixth form, reading all about the democracy protests in Tiananmen Square and Tank Man stood in his shirt sleeves and defied a whole train of tanks in Beijing. And I remember reading about that and seeing those pictures and thinking, these journalists, these photographers are telling the world something that is so powerful and that idea that the pen is mightier than the sword really struck home. So I went into journalism with very idealistic hopes to make the world a better place. And I loved bringing stories to screen involving people or places that were often marginalised or not heard, you know, places like the Democratic Republic of Congo. It's difficult to have a voice on the world stage if you don't have power. But I think being a journalist is fundamentally not the same as this unique relationship between doctor and patient where this particular individual, this person who's sitting right in front of you right now, who is frightened, vulnerable, maybe in pain, maybe experiencing the worst anguish of their life, it's you and them and your job right now is to focus completely on them and help them. And I think that's the reason we all go into medicine and it's immensely fulfilling. It's interesting because there is a part of journalism in which you do believe that you can do things which will change people's lives by revelation, reportage, whatever. Completely. And at risk of this turning into a sort of mutual appreciation society, John, you are that kind of journalist. I remember the years that I have watched Channel 4 News. You, at times, your critics might say too much. You would be fired up by the very obvious importance of bringing this interviewee's story to the world stage as a journalist. And I think I felt that too. If you care about vulnerable people in society, and many, many of us do, then whatever the means through which you try and help, it's important, isn't it? It's Mm. motivating. And that Mm. could be as a doctor, but equally it could be through the medium of trying to advocate on their behalf, bring their voice out there. And I loved trying to do that as a journalist. And it's something that I think both medicine and journalism interestingly share in common. They are professions in which advocacy is an incredibly important core part. You learned a valuable lesson when you were an inpatient on the maternity ward. Can you tell me 
about that experience? Yes. So I, like many young people, really hadn't had any experience of being an inpatient in hospital. I was very lucky. I was in good health. And when I had my first baby, which I did in the middle of medical school, uh, I was the first... You certainly loaded yourself I did, I did. And I was the first student to have a baby at med school, so it was all a a big drama. Well, it must have been handy too, because you could talk about the experience... Absolutely. ...from first hand. And I remember one year sitting my final exams, I waddled around almost nine months pregnant, and I swear I got top marks, because all the people examining the students wanted me out of their examination station as quickly as possible in case I Gave broke my waters in front of them. But when I had Finn, my my son, he, he was very unwell, had to go to paediatric neonatal intensive care. And suddenly I was on the other side of the fence. I wasn't a student. I was a vulnerable mother. I'd given birth. I had a child who happily was completely healthy ultimately, but but could have been gravely, gravely unwell. And the sheer impotence and the various ways in which you are stripped of your confidence, your identity, your individuality as a patient, you know, you literally no longer have a name. You have a barcode around your wrist, like a tin of beans in Tesco's. You don't wear your clothes. You're in a gown. All of that was dehumanising and 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 deeply uncomfortable. And it made me realise firsthand how very, very vulnerable patients are and how the medical system and institutions exist for the convenience of doctors and nurses and healthcare providers. They enable the system to process patients conveniently and they don't necessarily put the patient centre stage. And that early experience was very formative and it made me want to be the kind of doctor who always said to myself, there's only one person who matters in this room and it's you, the patient right in front of me. So it was with you in your journalistic career before becoming so? I think it was. And when I built a relationship with somebody who became a subject of a a documentary that I was making, I regarded that process very seriously. Trust is at the centre of that relationship, or it certainly Mm, should mm. be at the centre of the relationship between a a journalist and an interviewee. And I always wanted to be a journalist who was as good as their word, who could be completely trusted. I would never, ever, you know, in inverted commas, stitch up an interviewee. And likewise, trust is the bedrock of good doctoring. If your patients can't trust you to tell them the truth and have integrity and act with integrity as their doctor, then you're not worth your GMC licence and and you don't deserve to be a doctor. So trust should be the core of both professions. We're speaking to each other amid this doctor's crisis in the NHS. Suddenly, you are both a doctor and obviously an observer of what is happening in the NHS right now. Yes, and that's interesting. When I went to medical school, I made a very deliberate self-conscious decision to to sort of put my past as a journalist behind me. And I was very busy learning how to be a new doctor. And I, I said to myself, no more writing, no more films. And that worked for a few years until a certain individual made it absolutely impossible to keep quiet. And that, of course, was Mr. Jeremy Hunt, Mm. who in 2016 set off on this 
very deliberate collision course with junior doctors and decided he was going to flex his muscles and impose a a really punitive new contract upon us and used a whole array of dirty tricks in the media to smear junior doctors then. And I just had to use the skills I possessed as a former journalist to fight back. And I remember coming onto Channel 4 News as an interviewee myself and speaking as a frontline junior doctor about that dispute. You've said that an understaffed NHS, compassion and kindness can be the first things to go. How do you hold on to those qualities? Well, that's absolutely right, John. And I think it's why this week in the middle of the junior doctor strikes, my heart goes out to them because in healthcare, you have a bunch of fundamentally idealistic people, people who care. The caring part of their personality is the thing that has driven them into helping vulnerable patients. But what you find in an overloaded system, which is understaffed and under-resourced, is It doesn't matter how much you care and it doesn't matter how good a doctor you are. You cannot do a good job for your patients if they are stacked up on trolleys in corridors around you, if they can't even get out of the ambulance because emergency care has been allowed to collapse in this country. So suddenly you are a caring person plunged into unimaginably traumatic conditions where you are seeing human wretchedness and misery and death and dying. I've seen patients dying on the floor, dying in hospitals, on corridors, on trolleys, dying outside the hospital. They can't even get in to die with dignity. And that is traumatic and corrosive. And we we have a term for it, moral injury. The idea that despite your morality, your best efforts, you are set up to fail by the failing system. And that is incredibly corrosive. It doesn't just lead to burnout. It leads sometimes to severe mental health problems. Doctors are twice as likely as the rest of the population to take their own lives. Uh, We all know somebody who has taken their own life as a doctor, or all of us do. And it is absolutely heartbreaking. And it's one of the things that makes working in today's NHS whether you're a doctor, a nurse, a physio, a dietitian, whatever your role, unbelievably difficult. And without meaning to grandstand, it's also the thing that, as far as I'm concerned, makes Steve Barclay and Rishi Sunak's behaviour during these strikes absolutely despicable because they're playing politics. They know exactly why healthcare workers are striking. They know it's about patients and patient safety, and they simply don't give a damn. What I'm waking up to is that the very fact that you have a journalistic past gives you an extraordinarily articulate view of what's going on and a rather terrifying sound for those in power to have to hear. (laughs) But, you know, they shouldn't be, should they? I mean, how absurd that that combination should be threatening The NHS as an institution, and we're a big institution, we employ 1.3 million people in this country. From top to bottom, we have a statutory duty of candour. So ingrained in the heart of the NHS is this duty to tell the truth, to own up to our mistakes, to be honest with patients and the public. Now, I'm not saying the NHS gets it right. There are all kinds of problems in the NHS with cover-ups, with how the institution can treat whistleblowers. 
But actually, that is the core value, or it's meant to be a, a duty of candour. Isn't it insane, John, that the idea of that same duty, a duty of candour, could ever apply to the government? You know, in a sense, governments, politicians, not all of them, but many of them, they're the absolute antithesis of candid. You know, we all know why every year when the polling company Ipsos Mori polls the public to ask them, which professions do you trust most of all? Sadly, journalists are quite low. There's estate agents, but right at the bottom, below even estate agents and journalists, I think they score 12% of trust from the public are politicians and doctors and nurses, of course, are right at the top of that list of professions. How desperately sad and dangerous a state of affairs that is that the bulk of the public feels they can't trust the words that come out of a politician's mouth. Shame on them. You know, Steve Barclay's doing it at the moment with junior doctors, the spin that's coming out about why they're striking the pay that they do or don't get. And I think that that torrent of disinformation, it's not just harmful to the individuals it refers to. Much more fundamentally, it's harmful to the very fabric of British democracy and British society. We have to believe in our leaders. We have to have examples of people that we can look up to and can inspire us. And they should be the people empowering government. And it's a a kind of perversity that they're not. It's interesting, isn't it? Because the more you accumulate power, the more you accumulate responsibility. If you are in the government, you have immense power to transform the lives of Britain, in this case, for better or for worse. So you damn well better use that power wisely. And I think I'm the kind of person like many people who can't abide a bully. I cannot bear people who have power, whether it's sort of physical bullying strength or power because of your position in society and government. They use their power to bully people who are weaker. That was the thing that happened in the first junior doctor strikes in in 2016. We junior doctors were bullied by Jeremy Hunt They used smears, dirty tricks against us. I remember standing in front of a first-year doctor. She'd only been a doctor for a few months and she just burst into tears in front of me and said, I just want to be a doctor and help people. Why are they doing this to us? And my blood started to, to boil because I thought, here is somebody who's in floods of tears because she's being bullied by the government of all people for trying to do the job of helping patients. And that's wrong. And I think when I feel like that, I feel a great compulsion to try and do something about it. And the the only thing that's worse than trying to take a stand is giving up hope and not even trying at all. You know, the bullies want you to feel hopeless. They want to crush you under their thumb and they want you to give up and say, I can't change anything. I'm not even going to speak out. But we all in Britain live in a democracy. We all have a voice. Nobody can silence us without our consent. And I'll never give up and I'll never stop trying to use my voice to to help people who are vulnerable. What I find extraordinary is that you are working in a health system which demands absolutely everything of you, and yet you still remain that 
determined and angry voice that wants to see improvement and humanity. Well, I think, John, that is precisely because of what I see every day at work in the NHS. So I work in a really busy hospital in quite a deprived area. And take yesterday, I was at work yesterday for about 11 hours because we were covering for junior doctors. It was very, very busy. And I saw desperately sick patients, some of them very distressed all day long. And despite the distress and the pain and the fear in those patients, I also saw something beautiful and astonishing. And that is the qualities that I think are the absolute best of human nature. And you see it over and over again. You see people who are facing perhaps one of the darkest days of their life with courage and stoicism and dignity and grace. You know, the number of times a patient will say to me, I really hope everyone's okay in this overcrowded A&E because they can see how hard things are for staff. You just see the absolute best of human nature in a hospital. And I constantly come away from days at work thinking, by and large, people are decent and good and hardworking. It breaks my heart when this 95-year-old who has toiled and paid their taxes and maybe not earned very much money all their life now is here being failed by the NHS because it's been underfunded into a desperate shell of what it should be systematically over years and years of recent governments. And if I gave up and, and just was demoralised at that point, I feel as though I'd be part of the problem. Uh, you know, doctors are privileged. We have status in society and I think we should use it to speak out. You're listening to Snowcast with me, John Snow, and we'll be right back after this. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Because I, I knew you first as a journalist, I'm very intrigued to look at your journalistic experience and then contrast it with your experience as a doctor. As a journalist, you found yourself in quite a few dangerous situations, but the most terrifying experience of your career was your first night on call in a teaching hospital. What were your responsibilities? <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, uh, I even at, at times in my career, I came under fire from child soldiers in the Democratic Republic of Congo in the midst of a civil war. And I still maintain I was more frightened 
on my first night on call as a, as a junior doctor. Now, that's an incredible statement because some of us have been to the Congo and know exactly what we exactly, were talking about. Exactly. It genuinely isn't an exaggeration because that first night, I'd been to medical school for six years. I knew three million facts they say you learn at medical school. And I had my on-call bleep, but I didn't know how to save a patient who could perhaps be dying in front of me. And when you start those night shifts, your bleep is on fire. It never stops bleeping. You're you're summoned. You're the first port of call to every sick patient on the wards of the hospital at night. And you feel completely alone. You're sort of walking down miles of dark corridors and you'll arrive at a patient who perhaps has just had a stroke or a heart attack or a bleed in their brain and you are the first person and you have to decide what to do. And I started that night thinking the enormity of that was just impossible. I felt as though nothing I had learned prepared me for literally sort of holding the life of a human being in my hands. And what if I got it wrong? What if I made a mistake and and somebody ended up dying because of me? So you feel utterly unprepared. And in fact, medicine really is an apprenticeship. You learn so much on the job. You start to recognise exactly what's going on inside a patient from the clues and the signs on their exterior. So you're almost reading them as a text, as a book um, with experience. But when you don't have that experience and you start out, it is absolutely terrifying. And I learned that night, that horrifically traumatic night, although I'm pleased to say everyone survived, you learn, or I did, that the one thing it turns out that's more frightening than your own life being placed in danger is this gaping enormity of you potentially through your failures putting another human being's life in danger. And that is what you carry sort of on your back when you walk off on your first night as a junior doctor on call. And it is petrifying. Well, that is a very a very clear and frightening picture that you've given us. And it suggests that that is the experience probably of all those junior doctors as they Yes. begin their career. And also fundamentally, of course, and very um, appropriate to mention this now in the middle of the week of strikes, it's probably why first-year junior doctors should be paid a little bit more than £14 an hour. You chose to specialise in palliative care. Can you tell me why? Yes. So palliative care within medicine, it's not seen as a high-status specialty. It's It's not neuroscience or cardiothoracic surgery, those are the sort of sexy rock star specialties. So you will definitely have some individuals who are drawn to the status specialties. It is caring for any patients who have a life-limiting illness, an illness that may end up claiming their life. That's much broader than just patients who are dying, although I will see patients who are dying every day at work, but I might see somebody who has a cancer. They may live with that cancer for the next five years, but at the moment they've got very, very difficult pain, for example, and my job will be to help them with the pain, their symptoms. And 
fundamentally, I think the difference between palliative medicine and a lot of medical specialties is the fundamental approach to the patient. So my job as a palliative care doctor, it's not about dying, it's about living. It is about how do I help this patient live whatever amount of life of time they have left as richly and fully as they possibly can on their own terms. My my view of what's important to them doesn't matter. It's all about what matters to them. And I, I love to say that to patients. I love to say, you are the boss. You are the only person who matters. And I believe very fundamentally, and we all do in palliative medicine, that it does not matter how little time remains. Dying is a lived experience. We live as we die, and there is always potential to enable a person to live a little bit more richly, fully, with a little bit more comfort, more dignity, more joy, perhaps, in their life. And palliative medicine is about that. So one day it might be about prescribing a large dose of morphine, but the next day it might be about prescribing a daily evening southern comfort on ice with a twist of lemon because actually that little treat is what makes that patient light up and feel like a human being even though they're in hospital dying of cancer. And I sometimes have organised as a doctor the most left field experiences you can imagine for patients, including I want to say smuggling. You can't really smuggle a prize-winning bull into a hospital, but you can definitely get that bull in with a tractor and a trailer and not tell anyone in charge and just decide to do it, hoping no one will notice. And we did indeed do that because we had a patient who was a farmer and his wife, I said to his wife, what would make him really happy? And she said, oh, his bull. He loves that bull far more than he loves me. So we were like, okay. So we arranged to drive the bull in and he got to pet his bull a few days before he died. It did leave quite a mess in the hospice gardens at the edge of the uh, hospital, but it was worth it. Do you have to be an optimist at the outset or do you become an optimist or a pessimist in the course of this work? That's a very interesting question, John. I think you have to be quite brave because most people's initial response to close proximity to someone who is dying is fear. Not the fear that death is catching, although sometimes people sort of do feel that, that somehow if they're too close to death, then it may apply to them too. You know, we're all very good at living our lives in denial of the fact that we're mortal creatures and our days are numbered. But I think the fear for most people, and I certainly was like this as a young doc, youngish doctor, it's the fear that you won't know what to say, you'll get it wrong, you might start to get upset in front of someone. So actually the fear is about letting down the person who is who is dying. You, you sort of think there must be a, a, a formula of words to say or, or of how to behave that you don't know and therefore you're going to fail them. And of course, the truth of the matter is there are no magic formulas. And the thing that really matters to patients, it is not eloquent words. It's not dramatic gestures. It is someone they care about showing up beside them 
and sitting with their suffering and letting them talk about it and being there and hearing that and trying to articulate no matter how clumsily that they care about them and that they're there for them. That simple human connection is so life-affirming for patients and it becomes even more life-affirming, I think, the closer you are to the end of your life. I didn't know any of that until I actually started working as a palliative care doctor, but I started to see, I, I, I think I had this revelation that the suffering involved with dying is is of two fundamental types. There is unnecessary and necessary suffering. The necessary suffering is that absolute impossible to palliate anguish of being a mortal creature, of knowing that every single thing, every single person that you love in the world is slipping through your grasp, either because you are dying or because they are dying. That exquisite pain of being mortal is beyond palliation and we shouldn't pretend we can we can fix that it's something that we have to live with as mortal beings however there's a lot of suffering around dying that is not necessary pain and symptoms most of the time we can control brilliantly these days we've got incredible drugs and actually a lot of the suffering is around unvoiced fears, patients being afraid to talk about what they are most frightened of. And once you start an open conversation with a patient about what they're most frightened of, an awful lot of that, in my experience, actually melts away. And what you're left with is this incredibly optimistic thing, a person who is frail, vulnerable, confronting something that is so hard to confront but mustering all the inner strength and grace that they possess and it might not be very much but there's always a little bit and I just think what we witness in palliative care is the beautiful essence of human beings in a really profound sense. What's interesting is that you think that the rest of the NHS has an enormous amount to learn from palliative care. I really do. The traditional medical model is doctors doing things to patients. We act in ways that fix a broken body or a broken mind. Um, Whereas I think the better way to approach a patient is in a way more humble. It's to ask, how best can I help this patient on their terms? Can they tell me what matters to them most of all? And then the whole consultation should be framed in terms of precisely that of what matters to the patient, because they might not want the clever, complicated intervention, the new round of chemotherapy or the ambitious surgery. They might want to spend their precious time with their families, even if that time ends up being shorter, for example, and it's just you need to you need to make the centre of medicine the patient, not the institution, not the doctor. Now, anyone listening to this will say to themselves, "Cool, she's got a handful of things to do, and uh, she has a full enough life as it is." But oh no, you've gone off to Ukraine, and somehow, in your own time, I guess, you have managed to set up a project 
in Ukraine that is making a difference. Tell me about it. Well, last year, in October last year, I took some annual leave and I went to Ukraine with the amazing neurosurgeon and fellow author Henry Marsh, uh, who himself has gone to Ukraine for many years. And we went there to provide some teaching and training in palliative medicine to medical students and doctors in Ukraine. And as you can imagine, there is a desperate need for palliative care in Ukraine. All medical services have been disrupted. There are lots of patients who aren't, for instance, getting the cancer treatment they need. So their cancers are now palliative. There's a whole influx of people with terminal injuries from either the battlefield or from the cities in the east like Kharkiv that have been so savaged by the war. So there's this enormous burden of need. And of course, there's almost nothing on the ground to to provide that. So we went to just try and provide some education and it was an incredible experience. But I came away feeling like I desperately wanted to try and do more. And I wanted to try and set up a charity with the sole and simple aim of supporting local palliative care teams in Ukraine to deliver the best care they could to dying patients. And uh, And these would be dying patients from both disease and from conflict. Yes, exactly. There are more patients dying of diseases like cancer now because of the disruption over the last year. And there's also this new wave of patients who have terminal injuries from the conflict. So it's been very laborious, but we have just launched a new registered charity, Hospice Ukraine, which is going to have its launch event in June this year at the Royal Society of Medicine. And the whole idea of this event is to raise money that will go directly to helping doctors, nurses, teams in Ukraine trying to deliver palliative care will be... Can I join you at that opening? John, I would absolutely love it if you would join us. And I really, I, I'm going to shamelessly say to your listeners, please come and join us too. Mm. Uh, maybe we can post a link. We'll, it's 6th of we'll June in the evening and tickets are £20. And, and where will it be again? The Royal Society of Medicine. Mm. And we have a wonderful evening. Emily Maitlis and John Sopel are presenting the evening. We have Adam Kay, the former doctor turned writer doing stand-up comedy. We have Henry Marsh being interviewed, David Knott, the war surgeon, being interviewed. And it's going to be an incredible... People do desperately want to plug into Ukraine if they possibly can. Can, yes. but they don't know how to. And this sounds a really wonderful idea. I think so. I really find that as well. Everyone I speak to is just only too thrilled to help. And in fact, we have an anonymous benefactor covering all the costs of the evening. So every penny we raise will go to Ukraine. I'm going to be going back in the summer to Ukraine to do some more teaching and training. And we'll also be seeing exactly the impact of the money we raise. We'll be buying morphine patches, blankets, colostomy bags, all that kit that is the NHS expensive. being elastic about letting you out there and all that? I work for a wonderful trust that is very supportive. And right. in fact, my trust CEO is going to even come to the event. I'm oh. trying to get him to jump out of an aeroplane and do a sponsored uh, skydive, but he's drawn the line at that. <laughs> but this is very exciting and something which I'm sure... A lot of people listening to this podcast will want to, in some way, support. So what do they do if they want to? 
Well, if you want to support us, the website is hospiceukraine.com. So all one word, very easy. All the details of the event are on there and we would just love people to come to it. It'd be fantastic. That's brilliant. And I mean, it's an extraordinary tribute both to the NHS and to you that it's been possible for somebody to export what we have in this country to a country that needs it so badly. So true, John. And palliative care, that the whole specialty was invented in the NHS. So Cicely Saunders, the doctor who's the kind of mother of palliative care and invented the specialty in the 1950s and set up the first modern hospice, uh, she's behind this amazing NHS expertise that has been modelled and replicated around the world. And I know that I have so many palliative care colleagues who are just so keen to help and provide their expertise. We're hoping to set up an annual scholarship so that every year somebody can come from Ukraine and spend a couple of weeks in the NHS learning skills. So it's a really wonderful, I hope, partnership that's going to do a lot of good. I'm going to end on one theme, optimism, which is what you abounded, because you'd be completely bonkers to imagine as a busy (laughs) NHS doctor that you could also light the fire in Ukraine. How do you do it? I think it's really simple. I think that hope is like love. Hope is a doing word. Love is a doing word. You don't find hope and optimism by sitting at home worrying about the world. You find hope through action. You engage. You try and make a difference. You've got to have skin in the game. And even if your action is tiny, great ripples and reverberations can come from tiny actions. And tiny actions en masse make big things happen. We might not be able to change things as individuals, as groups and as populations, we can change anything. So hope's a doing word. So I try and get up and find my hope and my optimism through doing something. Rachel Clark, Dr. Rachel Clark, thank you indeed for coming on Snowcast. And I hope listeners will perhaps be moved to do something to support you. Thank you, John, so much. That was Dr. Rachel Clark, an inspiring force for good, who I am fortunate enough to call a friend. If you'd like to learn more about Hospice Ukraine and the work they're doing out there, you can find links to the charity in the episode description. I'm John Snow, and I'd like to say thank you for listening to Snowcast. I'll be sharing another episode next Tuesday, so please follow the podcast on your platform of choice. And I hope to meet you back here very soon. Goodbye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 